0: Back to infant nursery hour. You want someone to preach to you with your host, Glenn Ostler. You want religion, do you? It's sharing time. There will be many willing to preach to you the philosophies of men mingled with, with humor. You. Yeah. You can buy anything in this word. Uh huh. Hey there, Patreon supporters. It's June 1st, 2020. <laughs> and if, uh, all this stuff that we've been going on with COVID wasn't enough. Now we've got police and racial issues coming up. There have been riots everywhere. This is a crazy time that we're living in. And... it I, So I'm, I'm, I'm pushing pause, at least until I get my own shit together a little better on this uh, Justice Karma series for a little bit. It just seems so... Uh, i can't bring myself to pull put another episode out interesting stuff you know ndes and consciousness outside the body and karma and you know asking these questions compared to where's where's the practical implication of any of this in our everyday lives but when all of this stuff is going on oh, i just i can't bring myself to do it so um As supporters, patron supporters of Infants on Thrones, I want to share this with you. A couple of years ago for Martin Luther King Day, I read the uh, Letter from Birmingham Jail uh, that Martin Luther King Jr. wrote, which I first read in an English class many, many years ago. So profound. And uh, that's what I want to share with you today for, for sharing time. I also let you know, I've heard from a lot of listeners about these near-death experiences. It's really interesting. And um, as you can probably imagine, some people are on the side of believing them. Some people are on the side of not believing them. There's probably a lot of people in the middle that aren't quite sure. Um, but uh, it's been really interesting. So there there will be some more content along those lines that's going to be coming out in the next few weeks. And... Um, I want to recommend two books. Um, a, a listener recommended this to me a couple of months ago The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. And the first time I tried to read it, I couldn't get into it. And I think even the listener said he couldn't get into it. Um, but he tried it a second time, and it had a profound impact on him. That's been my experience as well. Then there's another book called Letting Go, and I think David Hawking, Hawkins is the author of that. He's a doctor. And it's covering similar material to The Untethered Soul, but it cites um, scientific studies, uh, psychological studies, and it's just been really, really helpful, really impactful. So that's going to be popping up in future episodes and uh, things that I share with you as well. So if any of you are interested, taking a look at those two books, The Untethered Soul and Letting Go, uh, more on that to come. And I just, I hope that you guys are doing well. I hope that in, in your own lives that you're finding ways to feel the feelings that you're feeling, <laughs> be honest about what's going on around you, um, and, and find a sense of peace and calm where you know that you are safe and you know that you are making a difference. Even if it's just in your own lives and the lives of people immediately around you that you love, um, you're important. You, you are really important and you've got a lot to give, every single one of you. And uh, with that in mind, let's go back in time to this letter from Birmingham Jail. It's really profound and uh, I'm happy to be able to share it with you today.
1: time i have the honor to present to you <laughs>
2: <laughs> this is infants on thrones the philosophies of men mingled with humor. we are the
3: core
0: welcome back to infants on thrones and happy martin luther king jr day it's uh, January twenty-first, pretty early in the morning, actually, um, for me. So maybe you'll hear it in my voice. <laughs> but um, I just had this thought, you know, like years ago. I don't remember when the first time was. It was it was for school when I was at Indiana University. Um, I read the letters from or letter from Birmingham Jail, uh, which was really really influential on me and played a role. Even in my faith crisis, in the way that I approached what I saw were <laughs> injustices in the church, and I chuckle at it to try, you know, thinking of comparing the injustices that I felt as a, as a Mormon kid <laughs> compared with what Martin Luther King Jr., was facing and trying to do uh to to create more racial equality in the united states it doesn't compare but at any rate i found this very uh inspirational and i want to reread it and i want to share my thoughts with you about it so let me give you some background here and basically i'm going to be summarizing from wikipedia because i don't know this off the top of my head but uh there was this thing called the Birmingham Campaign that began in on April 3rd, 1963, and it was coordinated marches and sit-ins to protest racism and racial segregation in Birmingham, Alabama. And um, on April 10th, so about a week after this campaign started, a circuit court judge issued a blanket injunction against parading, demonstrating, boycotting, trespassing, and picketing. So they created this law specifically to prevent what these what these people were doing. <laughs> the you know, which I mean it's stupid. It's stupid to make this comparison. But it, it's kind of to me like when the the country is moving towards more acceptance and equality of gay rights and gay marriage the Mormon Church's response is to create a new law, <laughs> you know, the, the 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 November policy, the infamous November policy, that says, okay, we're going to draw this line in the sand and say, uh, yeah, okay, sure, it's legal to be married as a homosexual couple, but in our eyes, you're apostate, and there's going to be these consequences. And at any rate, um, so that that was the law that was in place, and then two days after that. King was arrested, and he was treated really awfully. And four days after that, on April 16th, 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. wrote this letter that I'm going to read to you right now. All right, and here's here's a foreword. From the Birmingham jail, where he was imprisoned as a participant in nonviolent demonstrations against segregation, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote a longhand letter which follows... It was his response to a public statement of concern and caution that was issued by eight white religious leaders of the South. So it's, it's interesting, you know, the, the religious context that's part of the cultural context that Martin Luther King was responding to here. So he's writing to supposedly other fellow Christians. And he begins by saying, While confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement, calling our present activities unwise and untimely. Seldom, if ever, do I pause to answer criticism of my work and ideas. That's a good idea, Martin Luther King. Maybe I should be more like that. Uh, I don't know. I don't think I do that that much. If I sought to answer all of the criticisms that cross my desk... My secretaries would be engaged in little else in the course of the days, and I would have no time for constructive work. But since I feel that you're men of genuine goodwill and your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I wonder if he really felt that or if he was just kind of like sticking it to him a little bit there. I would like to answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. I think I should give the reason for my being in Birmingham since you have been influenced by the argument of outsiders coming in. I have the honor of serving as president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, an organization operating in every southern state with headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia. We have some 85 affiliate organizations all across the South, one being the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights. Whenever necessary and possible, we share staff. Educational and financial resources with our affiliates. Several months ago, our local affiliate here in Birmingham invited us to be on call to engage in a nonviolent direct action program if such were deemed necessary. We readily consented, and when the hour came, we lived up to our promises. So I am here, along with several members of my staff, because we were invited here. I am here because I have basic organizational ties here. Beyond this, I am in Birmingham because injustice is here. Oh, geez. It's so inspirational. Just as the 8th century prophets left their little villages and carried their, thus saith the Lord, far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns, And just as the Apostle Paul left his little village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to practically every hamlet and city of the Greco-Roman world, I too am compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my particular hometown. Like Paul, I must constantly respond to the Macedonian call for aid. Moreover, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Yeah, we're all connected. Martin Luther King was new age and (laughs) wooey. We're all one. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Never again can we afford to live with the narrow, provincial, outside agitator idea. Anyone who lives inside the United States can never be considered an outsider. And someday maybe those boundaries can extend beyond the United States, right? Wouldn't that be great? Because the same argument applies. Globally. You deplore the demonstrations that are presently taking place in Birmingham, Mormon Church. You don't want to hear people (laughs) criticizing you, Mormon Church. But I'm sorry that your statement did not express a similar concern for the conditions that brought the demonstrations into being. I'm sure that each of you would want to go beyond the superficial social analyst who looks merely at effects and does not grapple with underlying causes. I would not hesitate to say that it is unfortunate that so-called demonstrations are taking place in Birmingham at this time, but I would say, in more empathetic terms, that it's even more unfortunate that the white power structure of this city left the Negro community with no other alternative. In any nonviolent campaign, there are four basic steps. First, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, repentance. Third, baptism by immersion. Fourth, no, not that. Okay, all right. Let me go back to the letter then. Four basic steps. The collection of facts to determine whether injustices are alive. Negotiation. Self-purification. And direct action. We have gone through all of these steps in Birmingham. There can be no gainsaying of the fact that racial injustice engulfs this community, Birmingham is probably the most thoroughly segregated city in the United States. Its ugly record of police brutality is known in every section of this country. Its unjust treatment of the Negroes in the courts is a notorious reality. There have been more unsolved bombings of Negro homes and churches in Birmingham than in any other city in this nation. These are the hard, brutal, and unbelievable facts. One of the basis of, or yeah, I'm sorry, on the basis of them, Negro leaders sought to negotiate with the city fathers, but the political leaders consistently refused to engage in good faith negotiation. And again, you know, like the parallels between this and what we've experienced in Mormonism are there, but so insignificant in comparison that it's, I'm just very aware of that. I don't want that point to be lost in any of this, but. You can see (laughs) the political leaders or the the hierarchy of the Mormon Church consistently refuse to engage in good faith negotiations. Isn't that one of the things that we get so angry about all the time? Ah, They preach good faith and then they don't practice good faith. Anyway, so we need to make sure that we practice good faith, right? And don't get discouraged by it. And that's one of the things I find so inspiring about the example that Martin Luther King Jr. set here. You know, how do you how do you maintain your personal integrity when you're beset by people surrounding you who are not? How do you justify that? How do you not then just say, okay, well, if they're going to be dicks, I'm going to be a dick too. If they're going to be awful, I'll be awful too. If they're going to... Arrest me for stepping foot on the temple ground, I'm going to give lesbians, <laughs> her porn, not lesbians, but porn star lesbians, Temple recommends so they can go in and make porn in a temple, which is a recent Mike Norton stunt, if you haven't heard that already. How can we rise above and be the ones that set the example? And this I find so inspiring with Martin Luther King. So let me return to the letter. Then came the opportunity last September to talk with some of the leaders in the, uh, of the economic community. In these negotiating sessions, certain promises were made by the merchants, such as the promise to remove the humiliating racial signs from the stores. On the basis of these promises, Reverend Shuttlesworth and the leaders of the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights agreed to call a moratorium on any type of demonstration. As the weeks and months unfolded, We realized that we were the victims of a broken promise. The signs remained. As in so many experiences of the past, we were confronted with blasted hopes, and the dark shadow of a deep disappointment settled upon us. So we had no alternative, except that of preparing for direct action, whereby we would present our very bodies as a means of laying our case before the conscience of the local and national community. And just offhand, I think of, you know, Kate Kelly and the ordained women movement, which was probably the first time that I really heard this phrase or this idea of protesting with your bodies, putting your bodies in direct, uh, in the front lines of the conflict. I think about Sam Young, um, some other things there. We were not unmindful of the difficulties involved, so we decided to go through a process of self-purification. Boy, self-purification. I love it. We started having workshops on nonviolence and repeatedly asked ourselves the questions, Are you able to accept blows without retaliating? Are you? Am I? I'd like to be. Are you able to endure the ordeals of jail? You know, I think (laughs) I have a little bit of experience with jail. When I was going through my divorce, I think you probably all know this, but uh, I've talked about it a few times on the podcast. This was March 2011, and my ex-wife was... Uh, posturing (laughs) and called the police on me that I was you know domestically abusing her and I was arrested and I spent 24 hours in jail thankfully immediately after that my father-in-law rescued me (laughs) you know um which I hope is a statement that um Shows how um, just there really wasn't any cost for me to be in in that jail, but as I was there you know and, and what I mean by rescue me is we were able to we were able to get the charges dropped, I never had to stand in front of a judge it, it was as if it didn't happen except that it did, and as I was in that space for twenty four hours, and the instincts the thoughts came to me of just the injustice <laughs> my you know that that you know I felt like such a victim that this was happening to me and so helpless, and that there wasn't really anyone that I could turn to you know the 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 way that I was treated there there was this uh disrespect which I'm not accustomed to, and I had to to really put myself in the position of these you know, prison guards and workers that were doing this and, you know, all of the people that they see and who can they believe? What can they believe? They've got to, you know, in, in the protection of the vulnerable, they have to assume that anybody that comes in there is there for a reason and not be like, oh, okay, well, you seem like a nice guy, We'll be nicer to you, you know? So I, I intellectually understood that as I was going through it, but it still was hard to feel (laughs) to be on that the side of that and you know all 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 it was just a humiliating experience and and uncomfortable and and the thoughts in my head as i was in there first started going towards revenge how could i retaliate what could i do to get back at her and i like to think that because i had read this letter from birmingham jail that I was able to put my own situation in a better context I was able to the, the admiration that I had and have for Martin Luther King Jr. and the example that he set I'm getting emotionalism, I didn't expect this that that was something that that had an impact and an influence and I was able to find a a place of peace and calm as I acknowledged these instincts for revenge and rejected them and said, no, that's not the path I want to walk. That's not where I'm going to find peace. And um, anyway, so I, I have a little bit of experience when he asked this question, are you able to endure the ordeals of jail? But to, to to knowingly say, I'm going to put myself in a position where this is going to happen, that's different than my experience, because I didn't know that it was going to happen. All right, back to the letter. We decided to set our direct action program around the Easter season, realizing that with the exception of Christmas, this was the largest shopping period of that year. Knowing that a strong economic withdrawal program would be the byproduct of any direct action, we felt that this was the best time to bring pressure on the merchants for the needed changes. I'm so impressed by the honest transparency and the lack of guile in what he's saying here. He's... he's just laying his reasoning just very plainly on the table, and, oh, I love it. Then it occurred to us that the March election was ahead, and so we speedily decided to postpone action until after election day. When we discovered that Mr. Connor was in the runoff, we decided again to postpone action so that the demonstration could not be used to cloud the issues. At this time, we agreed to begin... Our nonviolent witness the day after the runoff. This reveals that we did not move irresponsibly into direct action. We too wanted to see Mr. Connor defeated, so we went through the postponement after postponement to aid in this community need. After this, we felt that direct action could be delayed no longer. You may well ask why direct action? Why sit ins, marches, and so forth? Isn't negotiation a better path? <laughs> and, and the small little ex-Mormon equivalent of that might be, why can't you just leave it alone? Why can't you just leave the church and just walk away? Why do you have to say things? <laughs> why do you have to bring this to any of our attention? <laughs> Back to the letter. You're exactly right in your call for negotiation. Indeed, this is the purpose of direct action. Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and establish such creative creative tension. Wow, creative tension. Oh, I like that word choice. Such creative tension that a community that has consistently refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. It seeks so to dramatize the issue that it can no longer be ignored. I just referred to the creation of tension as a part of the work of the nonviolent resistor. This may sound rather shocking, but I must confess that I am not afraid of the word tension. I have earnestly worked and preached against violent tension, but there is a type of constructive nonviolent tension that is necessary for growth, just as Socrates felt that it was necessary to create a tension in the mind so that individuals could rise from the bondage of myths and half-truths to the unfettered realm of creative analysis and objective appraisal, we must see the need of having nonviolent gadflies to create the kind of tension in society that will help men to rise from the dark depths of prejudice and racism to the majestic heights of understanding and brotherhood. So, the purpose of direct action is to create a situation so crisis-packed that it will inevitably open the door to negotiation. We therefore concur with you in your call for negotiation. Too long has our beloved Southland been bogged down in the tragic attempt to live in monologue rather than dialogue. One of the basic points in your statement is that our acts— are untimely. Some have asked, why didn't you give the new administration time to act? The only answer that I can give to this inquiry is that the new administration must be prodded about as much as the outgoing one before it acts. We will be sadly mistaken if we feel that the election of Mr. Boutwell will bring the millennium to Birmingham. While Mr. Boutwell is much more articulate and gentler than Mr. Connor. They are both segregationalists, dedicated to the task of maintaining the status quo. The hope I see in Mr. Boutwell is that he will be reasonable enough to see the futility of massive resistance to desegregation. But he will not see this without pressure from the devotees of civil rights. My friends, I must say to you that we have not made a single gain in civil rights without determined legal and nonviolent pressure. History is the long and tragic story of the fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. Individuals may see the moral light and voluntarily give up their unjust posture, but as Reinhold Niebuhr has reminded us, groups are more immoral than individuals. That's an interesting concept. Groups are more immoral than individuals. I wonder if that means that moral groups are more moral than moral individuals or that there's a possibility for that. That's an interesting question. I'll just put that little gadfly out there. (laughs) Maybe the gadfly bites a little bit more than that one does. At any rate, back to the letter. We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I have never yet engaged in a direct action movement that was well-timed, according to the timetable of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. It has been a tranquilizing, wow, thalidomide Five points to Dr. King. Thalidomide. What the hell is that word? I love it. Relieving the emotional stress for a moment, only to give birth to an ill-formed infant of frustration. On Thrones. We must come to see the distinguished jurist of yesterday that justice too long delayed is justice denied. We have waited for more than 340 years for our God-given and constitutional rights, The nations of Asia and Africa are moving with jet-like speed toward the goal of political independence, and we still creep at horse and buggy pace toward the gaining of a cup of coffee at a lunch counter. I guess it's easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen the vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will, and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, brutalize, and even kill your black brothers and sisters with impunity, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your 6-year-old daughter why she cannot go to the public amusement park that has been advertised on television and see the tears welling up in her little eyes when she's told that Fun Town is closed to color children and see the depressing clouds of inferiority begin to form in her little mental sky and see her begin to distort her little personality by unconsciously developing a bitterness toward white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son asking in agonizing pathos, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When you are, humili- when you are humiliated day in and day out, by nagging signs reading white and colored, when your first name becomes nigger, and your, and your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John, and when your wife and mother are, nevin, are never given the respected title of Mrs., when you are harried by day and haunted by night, by the, by the fact that you are a Negro... Living constantly at tiptoe stance, never knowing what to expect next, and plagued with inner fears and outer resentments. When you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. Wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into an abyss of injustice where they can experience the bleakness of corroding despair. I hope, sirs, that you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. You express a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break laws. This is certainly a legitimate concern. Since we so diligently urge people to obey the Supreme Court's decision of 1954, outlawing the segregation in public schools, it is rather strange and paradoxical to find us consciously breaking laws. One may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer is found in the fact that there are two types of laws. There are just laws and there are unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. Now, what is the difference between the two? How does one determine when a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. And that may mean something different to people who have rejected the idea of God. The symbols of God, the metaphors of God. But if you can get past that knee jerk reaction, if you have it, and I'm familiar with that knee jerk reaction, and see what's behind that. We're talking about charity and the love of neighbor and the love of brother. That's what we're talking about the law of God. Back to the letter An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal or natural law. Any law that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that degrades human personality is unjust. All segregation statutes are unjust. Because segregation distorts the soul and damages the personality, it gives the segregator a false sense of superiority and the segregated a false sense of inferiority. To use the words of Martin Buber, the great Jewish philosopher, segregation substitutes an I-it relationship for the I-thou relationship and ends up relegating persons to the status of things so segregation is not only politically economically and sociologically unsound but it is morally wrong and sinful paul tillich has said that sin is separation isn't segregation an existential expression of man's tragic separation an expression of his awful estrangement his terrible sinfulness So I can urge men to obey the 1954 decision of the Supreme Court because it is morally right. And I can urge them to disobey segregation ordinances because they are morally wrong. I mean, how do you argue with that? The the, the, the only way that I can see that you argue with that is that you can't really get the message because it's being filtered through unexamined biases and insecurities, and hatred, and an unwillingness to let go of that. Maybe even an unawareness that you're holding on to it and that's there in the first place. But still, this is so powerful and just clear and concise. I love this. Back to the letter. Let us turn to a more concrete example of just unjust laws. An unjust law is a code that a majority inflicts on a minority that is not binding on itself. This is difference made legal. On the other hand, a just law is a code that a majority compels a minority to follow and that is willing and and that it is willing to follow itself that the minority is willing to follow it's, itself. This is sameness made legal. Let me give another explanation. An unjust law is a code inflicted upon a minority, which that minority had no part in enacting or creating because it did not have the unhampered right to vote or the proper representation in the corridors of power, which I think is still very, very imbalanced even today. But it looks like it's moving in the right direction but just so slowly. (laughs) Uh. Throughout the state of Alabama, all types of conniving methods are used to prevent Negroes from becoming registered voters. It still happens today. And there are some counties without a single Negro registered to vote, despite the fact that the Negroes continue a majority of the population can any law set up in such a state be considered democratically structured you know and, and isn't that the the thing that we celebrate with our american pride when we look at the 4th of july and the no taxation without representation boston tea party declaration of independence from great britain like that kind of protest is okay which turned violent, obviously, with the Revolutionary War. Why is that so different from what Dr. King is describing here? These are just a few examples of unjust and just laws. There are some instances when a law is just on its face and unjust in its application. For instance, I was arrested Friday on a charge of parading without a permit. Now, there's nothing wrong with an ordinance, which requires a permit for a parade, but when the ordinance is used to preserve segregation and to deny citizens the First Amendment privilege of peaceful, peaceful assembly and peaceful protest, then it becomes unjust. Of course, there is nothing new about this kind of civil disobedience. It has been sublimely, or it was seen sublimely in the refusal of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to obey the laws of Nebuchadnezzar because a higher moral law was involved. It was practiced superbly by the early Christians who were willing to face hungry lions in the excruciating pain of chopping blocks before submitting to certain unjust laws of the Roman Empire. To a a degree, academic freedom is a reality today because Socrates practiced civil disobedience. We can never forget that everything Hitler did in Germany was legal, and everything the Hungarian freedom fighters did in Hungary was illegal. It was illegal to aid and comfort a Jew in Hitler's Germany. But I'm sure that if I had lived in Germany during that time, I would have aided and comforted my Jewish brothers even though it was illegal. If I lived in a communist country today where certain principles dear to the Christian faith are suppressed— I believe I would openly advocate disobeying disobeying these anti-religious laws. I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the last few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have also reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor, or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate, (laughs) the new order Mormon, (laughs) who is more devoted to order than to justice, who who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. And it's not even in this case, the absence of Tension. It's the illusion of the absence of tension. It's the ignoring the tension. It's the refusal to acknowledge the tension that already is there and exists, right? Dr. King continues, who constantly says, I agreed with you in the goal you seek, but I can't agree with your methods of direct action. Who paternalistically feels that he can set the timetable for another man's freedom who lives by the myth of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait until a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. In your statement, you asserted that our actions, even though peaceful, must be condemned because they precipitate violence. But can this assertion be logically made? Isn't this like condemning the robbed man because his possessions of money precipitated the evil act of robbery? Isn't this like condemning Socrates because his unswerving commitment to truth and his philosophical delvings? precipitated the misguided popular mind to make him drink the hemlock isn't this like condemning jesus because his unique god consciousness and never ceasing devotion to his will precipitated the evil act of crucifixion we must come to see as federal courts have consistently affirmed that it is immoral that, that it is immoral to urge an individual to withdraw his efforts to gain the basic constitutional rights because the quest precipitates violence society must protect the robbed and punish the robber i had also hoped that the white moderate would reject the myth of time i received a letter this morning from a white brother in texas which said all christians know that the colored people will receive equal rights eventually but it is but is it possible That you are in too great of a religious hurry? It has taken Christianity almost 2,000 years to accomplish what it has. The teachings of Christ take time to come to earth. All that is said here grows out of a tragic misconception of time. It's the strangely irrational notion that there is something in the flow of time that will inevitably cure all ills. Actually, time is neutral. It can be used either destructively or constructively. I am coming to feel that the people of ill will have used time more effectively than the people of good will. We will have to repent in this generation not merely for the vitriolic words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. We must come to see that human progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts and persistent work of men willing to be co-workers with God. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. You know, I can relate to this on the side of being someone who chooses a false sense of peace over actively calling out tension and pushing for changes that I see are necessary, not only just personally in my life, in in areas, if I'm not even thinking about anyone else, just myself, things that I recognize in myself that I'm not happy with or that I have over time. And I think, oh, well, eventually I'll get to it. Eventually I'll fix that. Eventually I'll do that. And I, and I read this and I feel like if if I can just start by being inspired to make better changes in me, then I can be a better, better influence on the people that are directly in my sphere around me. I think Matt said it really nicely in a recent episode that he was on where he was talking about this sphere of influence that starts with himself and then it goes out to his immediate family and then it goes out to his group of friends and then you know the the better he's able to be in radiating that will determine the positive influence and the positive ramifications of that personal choice i think there's a correlation here with doctor with what doctor king is saying and and i i know in myself uh, there's this inclination to first start thinking about groups of people and others and I think it's really important to pull it in to the self because if if that exists in me, if, if what he's saying here exists in me and I recognize that that complacency is bewildering to people who I claim to be an ally of, that I'm actually hurting them more. I'm hurting the cause more. And why am I doing it? To maintain a level of comfort that's the illusion of comfort. Something to think about. Anyway, back to the letter. You spoke of our activity in Birmingham as extreme. At first, I was rather disappointed that fellow clergymen would see my nonviolent efforts as those of an extremist. I started thinking about the fact that I stand in the middle of two opposing forces in the Negro community. One is a force of complacency made up of Negroes who, as a result of long years of oppression, have been so completely drained of self-respect and a sense of somebodyness that they have adjusted to segregation. And on the other hand, a few Negroes in the middle class who, because of a degree of academic and economic security, and because at points they profit by segregation, have unconsciously become insensitive to the problems of the masses. The other force is one of bitterness and hatred that comes perilously close to advocating violence. It is expressed in the various black nationalist groups that are springing up all over the nation, the largest and the best known being Elijah Muhammad's Muslim movement. This movement is nourished by the contemporary frustration over the continued existence of racial discrimination. It is made up of people who have lost faith in America, who have absolutely repudiated Christianity, and who have concluded that the white man is an incurable devil. I have tried to stand between these two forces, saying that we need not follow the do-nothingness of the complacent or the hatred and despair of the black nationalist, there is a more excellent way of love and nonviolent protest. I'm grateful to God that through the Negro church the dimension of nonviolence entered our struggle. If this philosophy had not emerged, I'm convinced that by now many streets of the South would be flowing with floods of blood." And I'm further convinced that if our white brothers dismiss as rabble-rousers and outside agitators those of us who are working through the channels of nonviolent direct action and refuse to support our nonviolent efforts, millions of Negroes out of frustration and despair will seek solace and security in black nationalist ideologies, a development that will lead inevitably to a frightening racial nightmare. Do I need to comment on what we're seeing in the country around us and what we've been seeing for the last several years and how just absolutely necessary this message is for all of us to hear and grapple with and and to use as a standard of measure? I just feel this so strongly. I didn't expect this when I decided to sit down and read this letter today, but I'm just feeling that so powerfully. And I'm just so grateful that this man lived and expressed the way that he saw the world in such brave and beautiful ways. Back to the letter. Oppressed people cannot remain oppressed forever. The urge for freedom will eventually come. This is what has happened to the American Negro. Something within has reminded him of his birthright of freedom. Something without has reminded him that he can gain it. Consciously and unconsciously, he has been swept in by what the Germans call zeitgeist. That's worldview, right? And with his black brothers of Africa and his brown and yellow brothers of Asia, South America, and the Caribbean, he is moving with a sense of cosmic urgency toward the promised land of racial justice Recognizing this vital urge that has engulfed the Negro community, one should readily understand public demonstrations. The Negro has many pent-up resentments and latent frustrations. He has to get them out. So let him march sometime. Let him have his prayer pilgrimages to the city hall. Understand why he must have sit-ins and freedom rides. If his repressed emotions do not come out in these nonviolent ways, they will come out in ominous expressions of violence. This is not a threat, it is a fact of history. So I have not said to my people, get rid of your discontent, but I have tried to say that this normal and healthy discontent can be channeled through the creative outlet of nonviolent direct action. Now this approach is being dismissed as extremist. I must admit that I was initially disappointed in being so categorized. But as I continued to think about the matter, I gradually gained a bit of satisfaction from being considered an extremist. Was not Jesus an extremist in love? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, pray for them that despitefully use you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the gospel of Jesus Christ? I bear in my body the marks of Jesus Christ. Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. Was not John Bunyan an extremist? I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a mockery of my conscience. Was not Abraham Lincoln an extremist? This nation cannot survive half slave and half free. Was not Thomas Jefferson an extremist? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. So the question is not whether we will be extremist, but what kind of extremists will we be? Will we be extremists for hate or will we be extremists for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or will we be extremists for the cause of justice? I had hoped that the white moderate would see this Maybe I was too optimistic. Maybe I expected too much. I guess I should have realized that few members of a race that has been oppressed... Let me start that again. I guess I should have realized that few members of a race that has oppressed another race can understand or appreciate the deep groans and passionate yearnings of those that have been oppressed. And still fewer have the vision to see that injustice must be rooted out by strong, persistent, and determined action. And I just want to say to that what a blessing media is and the internet, the ability that we have today and that will grow in just power and intensity in the future. It must, it must grow in the future. This ability to share our different viewpoints and experiences with other people in ways that helped them experience what they are unable to experience and to see what they're unable to see. You know, I think of the movie 12 Years a Slave and how painful that was to watch and how people that I wanted to watch it with, i like, oh, no, that's too hard for me. I'm not going to watch that. Yeah, that's a that's a nice privilege <laughs> to be able to say that is so distasteful. The way that people treat other people is so distasteful. I don't want to expose myself to that. What What a nice... Privilege to be able to choose to not expose yourself to that. But not everybody has that choice. (laughs) It's thrust upon people. And so, through these acts of fiction, you know, for as much as fictions get demonized by people who leave a faith tradition behind, fictions can be a very, very powerful way of stepping into someone else's shoes and feeling empathy. For these things. And I, I am grateful for the proliferation of such fictions and the ability to communicate them. And you think about the the ways that technology is moving with things like virtual reality and creating even more immersive experiences where, you know, it's not, you know, sitting and reading a letter like this and I can kind of feel a little bit, just a little fraction. I can touch what Martin Luther King was feeling and experiencing. Um, and through seeing that in a movie or hearing it said and hearing the emotion, or if you jump into a virtual reality world, or you get to the point where you can actually feel feelings or smell smells, if that's the future of entertainment or media, maybe even to a point of virtual reality, like the matrix where we can step into like a holodeck on the, on the star Trek enterprise and forget who we are, for a minute, you know, like the movie Total Recall, where Arnold Schwarzenegger, the the original <laughs> Total Recall, where Arnold Schwarzenegger has this experience, that's a programmed experience, and at the end of the movie, he's asking, "Wait, was this something that really happened, or is this something that was imagined?" You know, and we and we have these debates in our society now, asking, "Are we living in a simulation? Is our are our lives right now actually?" That futuristic technology that's happening today, it's a fascinating question to explore. But the point that I'm trying to make is what Dr. King says here is that he maybe shouldn't have expected that people who haven't experienced this would really truly be able to empathize with people who do. And I think that's an important point to make for all of us to remember who are interested enough to try to empathize with those outside of our skin. Back to the letter. Still fewer have the vision to see that injustice must be rooted out by strong, persistent, and determined actions. I am thankful, however, that some of our white brothers have grasped the meaning of social revolution and committed themselves to it. They are still all too small in quantity, but they are big in quality. Some, like Ralph McGill, Lillian Smith, Harry Golden, and James Dabbs, have written about our struggle in eloquent, prophetic, and understanding terms. Others have marched with us down nameless streets in the South. They sat with us at lunch counters and rode in with us at freedom rides. They have languished in filthy, roach-infested jails, suffering the abuse and brutality of angry policemen who see them as dirty nigger lovers. They, unlike many of their moderate brothers, have recognized the urgency of the moment and sensed the need for powerful action antidotes to combat the disease of segregation. Let me rush on to mention my other disappointment. I have been disappointed that the white church or I've been disappointed with the white church and its leadership, who he's writing to right now, right? Of course, there are some notable exceptions. I'm not unmindful of the fact that each of you has taken some significant stands on the issue. I commend you, Reverend Stallings, for your Christian stand in the past, this past Sunday in welcoming Negroes to your Baptist church worship on a non-segregated basis. I commend the Catholic leaders of this state for integrating Spring Hill College several years ago. But despite these notable exceptions, I must honestly reiterate that I have been disappointed with the church. I do not say that as one of those negative critics who can always find something wrong with the church. I say it as a minister of the gospel who loves the church, who was nurtured in its bosom, who has been sustained by its spiritual blessings and who will remain true to it as long as the court of life shall lengthen. I had the strange feeling when I was suddenly catapulted into the leadership of the bus protest in Montgomery several years ago that we would have the support of the white church. I felt that the white ministers, priests, and rabbis of the South would be some of our strongest allies. Instead, some few have been outright opponents— refusing to understand the freedom movement and misrepresenting its leaders. All too many others have been more cautious than courageous and have remained silent behind the anesthetizing security of stained glass windows. In spite of my shattered dreams of the past, I came to Birmingham with the hope that the white religious leadership of this community would see the justice of our cause and with deep moral concern, serve as the channel through which our just grievances could get to the power structure. I had hoped that each of you would understand, but again, I have been disappointed. I have heard numerous religious leaders of the South call upon their worshipers to comply with a desegregation decision because it is the law. But I have longed to hear the white ministers say, follow this decree because... Integration is morally right. Wait, wait, wait. Let me do that again. But I have longed to hear white ministers say instead, follow this decree because integration is morally right and the Negro is your brother. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churches stand on the sidelines and merely mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. In the midst of a single struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard so many ministers say, those are social issues which the gospel has nothing to do with. And I have watched so many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion which made a strange distinction between bodies and souls, the sacred and the secular. There was a time when the church was very powerful. It was during that period that the early Christians rejoiced when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was the thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Wherever the early Christians entered a town, the power structure got disturbed and immediately sought to convict them for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But they went on with the conviction that they were a colony of heaven and had to obey God rather than man. They were small in number but big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. They brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contest. Things are different now. The contemporary church is often so weak, oh, is often so, uh, is often, okay, (laughs) the contemporary church is so often a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It is so often the arch supporter, the arch supporter of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church, the church's often vocal, sanction of things as they are. Yeah, because the they got the power now. And, and he said it earlier, people with power don't let go of the power. And maybe are even blinded, intentionally blinded to the collateral damage that holding onto their power inflicts on other people. And you can think about the things that Many of us who have left the Mormon church have recognized about this cultural membrane that is created and put around the Mormon group that says, we are the saints and the rest of the world, and we are righteous, and they are wicked. They are, they are the wicked coffee drinkers, the wicked cigarette smokers, the wicked tattoo havers, <laughs> multi-ear piercers. They're the ones that have sex. Uh, It's the us versus them thing, and it's just a part of human nature. Back to the letter. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If the church of today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed As an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. It's happening. You you see people so disillusioned by religion, disillusioned by these power structures, you know, the movie Spotlight and and the issues in the Catholic Church with uh, the, the priests and sexual abuse of minors and the way that they protect and shield their organization, you know, things like that. It's caused so many people to be disillusioned. So this is exactly what's happening. We're seeing it. I meet young people every day whose disappointment with church has risen to outright disgust. I hope the church as a whole will meet the challenge of this decisive hour. But even if the church does not come to the aid of justice, I have no despair about the future. Oh, this is important to hear. I want to hear what this has to say. No despair about the future would be a nice place to be. I have no fear about the outcome of our struggle in Birmingham, even if our motives are presently misunderstood. We will reach the goal of freedom in Birmingham and all over the nation because the goal of America is freedom. Abused and scorned though we may be, our destiny is tied up with the destiny of America. I guess... (laughs) I guess I don't have the same optimism as in America. And maybe he didn't either. Maybe he was creating a, an intentional fiction as a, a an ideal and a goal to strive for, borrowing on threads of the fabric that had been woven in the cultural membrane of Americans. Before the pilgrims landed at Plymouth, we were here. Before the pen of Jefferson scratched across the pages of history in the majestic word of the Declaration of Independence, we were here. For more than two centuries, our foreparents labored here without wages. They made cotton king. They built the homes of their masters in the midst of brutal injustice and shameful humiliation. And yet, out of a bottomless vitality, our people continue to thrive and develop, if the inexpressible cruelties of slavery could not stop us, the opposition we now face will surely fail. I'm going to read that again in a better way. If the inexpressible cruelties of slavery could not stop us, the opposition we now face will surely fail. That's better. We will win our freedom because the sacred heritage of our nation and the internal will of God are embodied and our echoing demands. And I want to add to that in the nobility of the soul that Dr. King was wanting to remind all men of, but especially those men and women in his community that had been so conditioned, as he mentioned earlier, to, to feel less than. That that, that spark of self love, self-worthiness, nobility. That's what he's, that's, that's what he's identifying. That's what I think he's identifying here. And I think that's where he's placing his hope. That's interesting. I will sit with that. Back to the letter. I must close now, but before closing, I am impelled to mention one other point in your statement that troubled me profoundly. Again, he's talking to these religious leaders you warmly condemned the birmingham police for keeping order or oh, no 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 not condemned my my bad you warmly commended the birmingham police the birmingham police force for keeping order and preventing violence in quotes i don't believe you would have so warmly commended the police force If you had seen its angry, violent dogs literally biting six unarmed, nonviolent Negroes. I don't believe you would so quickly commend the policemen if you would observe their ugly and inhuman treatment of Negroes here in the city jail. If you would watch them push and curse old Negro women and Negro girls. If you would see them slap and kick old Negro men and young boys. If you would observe them as they did on two occasions, refusing to give us food because we wanted to sing our grace together. I'm sorry that I cannot join you in your praise for the police department. It is true that they have been rather disciplined in their public handling of the demonstrators. In this sense, I don't understand that. I'm going to read that again. It is true that they have been rather disciplined in their public handling of the demonstrators in this sense they have been publicly nonviolent but for what purpose to preserve to preserve the evil system of segregation over the last few years i have consistently preached that nonviolence demands that the means we use must be as pure as the ends we seek yeah Yes, so I have tried to make it clear that it is wrong to use immoral means to attain moral ends. But now I must affirm that it is just as wrong, or even more, to use moral means to preserve immoral ends. Amen. I wish you had commended the Negro demonstrators of Birmingham for their sublime courage, their willingness to suffer, and their amazing discipline in the midst of the most inhumane provocation. One day, the South will recognize its real heroes. They will be the James Merediths, courageously and with a majestic sense of purpose facing jeering and hostile mobs, and the agonizing loneliness that characterizes the life of a pioneer. They will be old, oppressed, battered Negro women, symbolized in a 72-year-old woman of Montgomery, Alabama, who rose up with a sense of dignity, and with her people decided not to ride the segregated buses, and responded to one who inquired about her tiredness with ungrammatically profundity or with ungrammatical profundity. My feet is my tired. No, my feet is tired, but my soul is rested. They will be young high school and college students, young ministers of the gospel, and a host of their elders courageously and nonviolently sitting in at lunch, lunch counters and willingly going to jail for conscience's sake. One day the South will know that when these disinherited children of God sat down at lunch counters— They were in reality standing up for the best in the American dream and the most sacred values in our Judeo-Christian heritage. Never before have I written a letter this long, or should I say a book? I'm afraid that it is much too long to take your precious time. I understand that sentiment, and I am so glad that it's not too long to take up our precious time. I can assure you that it would have been much shorter— If I had been writing from a comfortable desk, but what else is there to do when you are alone for days in the dull monotony of a narrow jail cell? cell? Other than write long letters, think strange thoughts, and pray long prayers. If I have said anything in this letter that is an understatement of the truth and is indicative of an unreasonable impatience, I beg you to forgive me. If I have said anything in this letter that is an overstatement of the truth and is indicative of my having a patience that makes me patient with anything less than brotherhood I'm gonna read that one again. If I have said anything in this letter that is an overstatement of the truth and is indicative of and is indicative of my having a patience that makes me patient with anything less than brotherhood, I beg God to forgive me. Yours For the cause of peace and brotherhood, Martin Luther King Jr. Amen. Now, I sat down this morning with the intention of reading and commenting on this for the nearly 300 Patreon supporters of Infants on Thrones, and I thank those of you who are there and supporting what I'm doing with the podcast and my fellow infants are doing with the podcast. And in the course of reading it, I just realized this this needs to be heard by more than 300 people. We usually have a, a, a listening audience of around 6,000 for those podcasts that are generally public podcasts. And that's what this one needs to be. I, I, I published earlier this morning, part two, of a conversation that I had with Brady Bloom on The Meaning of Life, which I think is really good. And I I always hesitate to publish two episodes right on top of each other because the one buries the other. But if there's ever a podcast that deserves (laughs) to trump, what an ironic word, to trump another, it's this one. On, On Martin Luther King Day, January 21st, 2019, these are words that are still needed to be heard and and grappled with by every single one of us. It doesn't matter who we are, what background we come from. This is important, and I just feel that so strongly. And it is my absolute joy and privilege to be able to share this with you who are listening to this. And I hope that it has been as meaningful and impactful to you to hear these words and to hopefully step outside of your skin for a little while and and put your mind, compare that to the mind of Dr. Martin Luther King and your experiences in your life compared to his experiences in his life and the lives that he's sharing with us through this letter that he wrote so, so long ago, but not really all that long ago. It's just my privilege to be able to share this with you. And I thank you so much for your encouragement and support of Infants on Thrones. Definitely it has been changing since the very first episode over six and a half years ago. And for those of you that have been with us the whole time, I hope that those changes, you've seen value and meaning in your life as well. And I also thank you for those of you who make... Uh, uh your impact felt whether it's through listener essays, comments on our website, emails, support on patreon there's so many different ways f- filling out surveys you know uh, those those things that you say, even the really, really stupid stuff <laughs> influences me and helps me create equally if not more stupid stuff for you to consider and enjoy and Wow, this has been a really, really powerful thing to read. And uh, I say these things in the name of Martin Luther King Jr., if I may be so bold. Amen. Hi, this is Hillary. Matthew Brian, Carol, Keith. Ashley. And I like to play bingo online while listening to Infants on Thrones. You
3: can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And
0: if you really like what you hear...
3: Give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes.
0: I did. I did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer?
3: Thank you for listening to
1: Infants on on Thrones. At this time, I have the honor to present to you the moral leader of our nation. I have the pleasure to present to you Dr. Martin Luther King, J.R., to end the long night of their captivity but 100 years later the Negro still is not free. 100 years later the the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. One hundred years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. One hundred years later, the, the Negro is still languished in the corners of American society and finds himself in exile in his own land. And so we've come here today to dramatize a shameful condition. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check when the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. They were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall out. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today There will be neither rest nor tranquility in America until the Negro is granted his citizenship rights. The whirlwinds of revolt will continue to shake the foundations of our nation until the bright day of justice emerges. But that is something that I must say to my people who stand on the warm threshold which leads into the palace of justice. We must forever conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. We must not allow our creative protests to degenerate into physical violence. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. The marvelous new militancy which has engulfed the Negro community must not lead us to a distrust of all white people. For many of our white brothers, as evidenced by their presence here today, have come to realize that their destiny is tied up with our destiny. And they have come to realize that their freedom is inextricably bound to our freedom. We cannot walk alone and as we walk we must make the pledge that we shall always march ahead we cannot turn back there are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights when will you be satisfied we can never be satisfied as long as the negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality we can never be satisfied as long as our bodies heavy with the fatigue of travel cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and the hotels of the cities we cannot be satisfied as long as the Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one we can never be satisfied as long as our children are stripped of their selfhood and robbed of their dignity by signs stating for whites only. We cannot be satisfied as long as a Negro in Mississippi cannot vote, and a Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we are not satisfied, and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. I am not my unmindful that some of you have come here out of great trials and tribulations. Some of you have come fresh from narrow jail cells. Some of you have come from areas where your quest for freedom left you battered by the storms of persecution and staggered by the winds of police brutality. You have been the veterans of creative suffering, Continue to work with the faith that unearned suffering is redemptive. Go back to Mississippi. Go back to Alabama. Go back to South Carolina. Go back to Georgia. Go back to Louisiana. Go back to the slums and ghettos of our northern cities, knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. I say to you, today, my friend, so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream
3: Why, why are we here To say our hellos and goodbyes And disappear This beautiful life What is it for To learn how to masterpiece Or master war There's only one answer that matters Even if your heart has been shattered Whatever you
2: want, whatever you are after
3: Love
2: is
3: still the end i Yeah uh